0: And he wrote a blog about his experiences leading up to his death. And he actually wrote his final blog post before he died and asked a friend to post it after his death. And it was written from the perspective that he has now died. And it began this way. Here it is. I'm dead. And this is my last post to my blog. And he goes on to say, I haven't gone to a better place or a worse one. I haven't gone any place because Derek doesn't exist anymore. As soon as my body stopped functioning and the neurons in my brain ceased firing, I made a remarkable transformation from a living organism a corpse, like a flower or a mouse that didn't make it through a particularly frosty night. Contrast that to the blog of a friend of mine from seminary named Dave McIntyre who was also dying of cancer and he wrote of his experiences on a blog and while he did not write his own post-mortem blog post, these words were posted on his blog the day of his death. It can be said of Dave, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Dave's battle with lymphoma came to an end early this morning. As he went to be with Jesus, he is completely healed. While this is a sad time, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. We know that as he took his last breath on this earth, he was instantly being welcomed by his Father in heaven. He is now rejoicing in the presence of his Savior. What a difference in those blocks. What a difference in perspective. One said, I don't exist anymore, I'm like a frozen mouse. The other says, I'm rejoicing in the presence of my Savior, now completely healed. You see, our perspective on God and eternity shapes us. It shapes how we approach death and it shapes how we approach life. And the degree to which we really do believe in God and eternity with Him does impact the way we live. And this is what we see in our passage today. As the apostles face persecution for preaching about Jesus. And because they are now convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, it gives them great confidence and boldness to face their persecutors. So I've entitled the passage today, Priority and Perspective. It's Acts chapter 5. Um, It's kind of a lengthy passage, so I hope that you can hang in there with me. Verses 17 to 42. Remember what the Bible says in another place. He who perseveres to the end shall be saved. So, you need to persevere to the end today in this passage. (laughs) I was corrected by my wife. She said that was taken out of context. (laughs) In this passage, we see the disciples, the apostles, demonstrate courageous and bold priorities that are the result of their perspective. All right context last week we saw God's attitude towards sin in the church he struck down Ananias and Sapphira and then Luke gave us another snapshot of the expanding reputation and influence of the church it was the time of great healings and miracles by the apostles remember it said people would bring the sick and they'd lay them in the street with the hopes that Peter's shadow might even fall upon them to be healed. Luke tells us that multitudes were coming to the faith. And so it's this growing impact of the church that leads to the concern of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. All right, so we begin with the arrest and divine release of the apostles. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up along with all his associates that is the sect of the Sadducees and they were filled with jealousy and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in A public jail. Well, because so many people, multitudes, Luke told us, were joining this new movement as followers of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the high priest, now remember, he's the most powerful man in Israel under Roman rule, decided to take action again to try to stop and put the brakes on this growing movement. He was working, we're told, in conjunction with and agreement with his associates, the Sadducees. Luke describes them as a sect. He says the sect of the Sadducees. Well, it simply means that they were one of the groups within Judaism at the time. Now, we might remember, as we went through the Gospel of Luke, the main opposition to Jesus in Luke was not the Sadducees, it was the Pharisees. Remember that? Okay. They were kind of the party of the people they had they were the ones who had all the religious rules and traditions which you know got them upset because Jesus didn't follow all their traditions that they had added to the law. Well, the Sadducees were the party of the wealthy and the elite, and they, the Sadducees formed the majority, although Pharisees were a part of it, but the Sadducees formed the majority of the high council that we refer to sometimes as the Sanhedrin. And these wealthy, ruling elite, Sadducees and priests, high priests, and so on, they had worked out a delicate governing authority under Roman rule, so that they were allowed to exercise political authority in Israel, and they enjoyed this power that was granted to them from Rome granted to them from Rome, but this rapidly growing movement could be seen as a threat to their positions of power, because if it got too big and Rome had to come in, they might do away with the rule and authority of the council. So Luke says they were filled with jealousy, they were angry that people were aligning themselves and following. This Jesus of Nazareth. Well, why might they be so angry? Well, Jesus was proclaimed as God having raised him from the dead. Okay, I mean, that's their basic message. You put him to death, God brought him back. He raised him up. Problem is, the Sadducees did not believe in any kind of resurrection. So the whole movement of those following Jesus was a frontal assault on the beliefs of the Sadducees as well as an erosion of their power base. And if this Messianic movement continued, not only would they lose followers, but it might bring reprisals from Rome. So having previously sought to deal with this, how did they previously try to do it? They arrested Peter and John. Remember when they were preaching in the temple after the healing of that lame man? Okay, they warned them, stop your preaching, no more, no more preaching. They released them. But now they arrest all the apostles, and they put them in a public jail, and this suggests that it was a jail where people could actually see that they had been arrested. And hopefully, maybe, uh, the people would look upon them with disfavor then. These are people in jail now, Okay. Let's read on, verse 19, And an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, taking them out, he said, Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Well, now we have divine intervention bringing about the apostles' release from jail. Luke doesn't give us any detail here about how this happened and how it came down and, and what about the guards and all of that. doesn't give us any detail here. We know there's another event similar to this we haven't got to yet. It's in Acts 12 about Peter's release. He gives us some more details there. So we might safely assume maybe it was similar, but apparently he didn't think it was important enough to give us the details. Just the fact that the angel of the Lord showed up and got him out of jail. Opened the gates, took him out. Now, once outside, he gave the apostles the commission. He says, now, I want you to go back to the temple where you were arrested, okay? And I want you to continue preaching the message of life, life that is only found in Jesus Christ. So early the next morning, they were there. Now, there's something significant about this event. I think there is. Not only did the Sadducees... Not believe in a resurrection, they didn't believe in angels either. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. And so when the people started showing up the next morning and the apostles were in the temple preaching, you know, they said, How'd you get here? Weren't you in jail last night? How'd you get out of jail already? Well, an angel came and released An angel came. Well, how else do you think we got out? They didn't let us out. You mean there really are angels? Yeah, the angel came and released them. So, once again, it's another undermining of the Sadducees. But even more importantly than that, it shows God's approval on the message of the apostles. That He was working. God sent His angels to release His servants, those proclaiming His message. And it shows God's approval of the message of the apostles. And it also shows significantly the powerlessness of the council to thwart what God is doing. We're going to put them in jail and this will stop them. Oh, really? <laughs> they were out by the next morning at the temple. So we move on. We have the rearrest of the apostles. Now, when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the council together, even all of the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in prison. And they returned and reported back to the high priest and the council, saying, We found the prison, ho- a prison house locked quite securely, and the guards were there standing at the doors. And so when we went in... To take the prisoners we opened up we found no one inside <clears throat> so first thing Luke tells us is that the priest called the council together the next morning and it seems to be a meeting he wanted to make sure the entire council was present because he says he he called the council together even all the senate of the sons of Israel and that's not a reference to another body as if there's a council and then there's a senate it simply means that is the the senate of the sons of Israel and seems to suggest the importance of this matter to the high priest he wanted everyone there to deliberate on this he wanted the support of the full council and so they went in to bring the apostles from prison and the guards didn't even know anything had happened (laughs) the prisoners weren't there verse 24 now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this but someone came and reported to them behold the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people we might read again then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back but without violence for they were afraid of the people lest they themselves might get stoned. So, when the word got to the council, Luke says they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. They understood that this might very well be interpreted by the people as God being on the side of the apostles, that he had orchestrated their release. And if he was on the side of the apostles, and the council was opposing the apostles, therefore they would be opposing God. So, they were given word that they were back preaching in the temple, defying their authority again. And so they went and rearrested them and brought them to the council. But Luke tells us they were restrained from treating the apostles with violence when they arrested because they feared the reaction of the people. Alright, now we have them before the council. We have the interrogation. First of all, we have the council and then we have the response of the apostles. Verse 27, And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying... We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Excuse me. So the apostles, as a group, okay, before it was just Peter and John, now they're as a group before the Supreme Council in Israel, gathered in this emergency session. But what do you notice that the council does not ask they don't ask how'd you get out of jail how'd you how'd you get out who helped you because that would only be an embarrassment not only would that be an embarrassment but that would be a straightforward admission that they the council are acting against what God is doing because God got them out of jail so they didn't want any part of that So the high priest brought two charges. First of all, they violated their previous order to cease preaching about Jesus. And they had violated it with such blatant disregard that he says, you fill the entire city of Jerusalem with your teaching. That's interesting. Remember the commission that Jesus gave them when the Holy Spirit would come upon you. You would be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And so they're fulfilling that phase of the commission. All of Jerusalem is now hearing. Okay? And then he also accuses the apostle of bringing this man's blood upon us. In other words, placing the guilt for the death of Jesus upon them. And that will also turn the people against them. And if that happens, they will lose their power, their authority, and their control. They don't want to be seen as the ones who put this man to death, the ones that they're, now, the one that they're now following. You may also notice here that there is no interest at all on the part of the council in determining whether the claims and the message of the apostles are really true. They're not there to examine them and say, now this is what you're saying. What is the evidence for saying this? We want to hear it. And then they would render a a decision about... they They don't even care about that. They just want them to stop. Well, we have the response of the apostles then. Peter and the apostles answered and said, and it appears that they're all there kind of, speaking together, but I think Peter's probably the spokesman again. Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than man. Now we should note two things here. First of all, you can't help but notice the boldness of Peter and the apostles in contrast to their behavior before the crucifixion. They had fled, and Peter had blatantly denied the Lord just standing around a campfire outside of where Jesus was being interrogated. But now, there they are, together, standing before the most powerful men in Israel. And they don't even blink. What a testimony it is to God's work in their lives, His grace, His forgiveness, and His restoration, and His enabling power. God had transformed them from scattered, fearful cowards to now these bold, courageous witnesses. God can do the same for us. Secondly the apostles notice that the apostles are not attempting <clears throat> excuse me they're not attempting to defend themselves they don't offer excuses they don't attempt to mitigate their actions but look at the decisiveness and the courage with which they identify with Jesus earlier when they were before the council Peter and John had said well whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God you be the judge on that okay? but now they even more boldly affirm it and all of the apostles are equally committed we must obey God rather than man and notice the word we must obey God There's no question in their minds. There's no vacillating anymore. This is their highest priority. They're not backing down. And they're willing to accept and endure the consequences, whatever they may be. And they know very well what the consequences might be when they're called for the second time before the council. All right. Well, and now Peter, as a spokesman, does two things. He explains to them why they must obey God. But in doing so, he's actually giving them the message of the gospel. He's witnessing to them. Okay? The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. So they are putting the guilt, the blood for that man's death at their hands. Okay, He says it right there. You put to death by hanging on a cross. But he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The message? Jesus was sent by God. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. But you, the Messiah came, but you, you put him to death. You crucified him. But God exalted him, raised him from the dead, exalted him to his right hand, preeminent above all things, preeminent above all people. And as such, he is a prince. That means he is the Messiah. And he is a Savior. He is the one who saves. And, Peter says, God grants repentance and forgiveness to all who come and so Peter is extending the message of forgiveness to them the ones who put him to death put Jesus to death and, and so Peter says we're witnesses of these things we are witnesses of these things this is why we must proclaim him this is why we can't stop we've seen it God is doing this God is working and he says, and "And so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a witness of these things, and that means the Spirit of God testifies to, to their message through the miracles that they had been doing. That was the evidence that the Spirit of God was indeed working. All right. Now, the next section we have, a man that steps forth named Gamaliel. But when they heard this, that is when the council heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. What was the reaction of the council? They were furious. They were cut to the quick. Literally, the word means they were sawn in two. The idea, they were split open, torn apart with rage. They wanted them put to death. Just like they had done Jesus. And they may have been successful, except for the presence of one man named Gamaliel. Verse 34, But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men, the apostles, outside for a short time, just a few minutes. So this wise and respected Pharisee ordered the apostles out of the council chambers so so that he might address the members of the council. This is what he said, verse 35. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, a man named Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined him. And he was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed, and (laughs) they came to nothing and after this man Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him and he too perished and all those who followed him were scattered so Gamaliel's advice was to be cautious about what they do to the leaders of this new movement be careful, be cautious and he gave two examples from their own history a man named Thutis another man named Judas not Judas Iscariot another man and they both demonstrated the same point his point was this gentlemen there have been other messianic movements in Israel those claiming to be the Messiah and when their leaders died <laughs> their followers scattered they, 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 and their movements died of their own accord they amounted to nothing the movement of this leader the the leader of this movement is already dead. They killed him. Okay? So he says, I suggest that you wait a while before taking any more serious actions like killing the leaders. Okay? So that was his counsel. Counsel to the council. And so this is his conclusion. Verse 38. And so in the present case, I say to you, Stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else they, or else you, may even be found fighting against God. So his reasoning is pretty clear. If this new movement. Jesus of Nazareth is not of God, it'll die out of its own accord. His followers won't last. But, if it is of God, and I can't help but think here that this might suggest that Gamaliel himself was beginning to wonder, see the evidence of what was going on. Could this, he's thinking, really be of God? As if it is of God, then it cannot be stopped. And to oppose it would be fighting against God himself. Now this is the providence of God. To raise up such counsel at this time by an individual respected by those present and one to whom they would listen. When Gamaliel spoke, they listened. And his counsel may have saved the lives. the Apostles showing us again how God was superintending and orchestrating the growth and expansion of his new people and you know what Gamaliel's words actually become prophetic because time will demonstrate as we know by the fact that we're here today that the movement did not die out but continued to expand And this, in Gamaliel's own words, proves indeed that the movement of Jesus was indeed of God. So what's the response to that? Well, first of all, the council. And they took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. Well, the council took his advice, meaning they didn't pursue putting the apostles to death although the apostles may have wished they had, because they weren't put to death, but they were flogged. That means they were beaten severely with 39 lashes across the bare back and chest. They were all beaten. And they're ordered once more to stop all preaching about Jesus. Well, so that was the end of the apostles' preaching, right? The council had finally silenced them, right? Wrong. Look at the response of the apostles, verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, having been flocked, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name, And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They left rejoicing after having been flogged nearly to death. And history shows that some people actually died during the flogging. It was that severe. And they rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame. For His name, I, I have to admit, this is so foreign, you know, to rejoice that you are able to suffer for Jesus. But I think the, the the key word here to understand this, the key word I think is considered worthy to suffer. And the idea is that Jesus had suffered the same treatment the shame and the suffering, although much worse, but he had suffered the same treatment. And now they were so closely aligned with and identified with him that they too suffered the same fate. You see, if they'd not been preaching, that wouldn't have happened. If they'd shut up when they were been, been told to shut up, that wouldn't have happened. But they were so identified with Jesus... They had been so faithful that they had suffered the same fate. And so it is in this sense that they considered it an honor to suffer because it meant that they had been faithful to him. It was evidence. It was proof that they had been faithful because if they denied him, they wouldn't have suffered. But they had been faithful contrast this to their fleeing and denials before his death no suffering they all fled and then they just kept right on preaching Jesus knowing that it will very well bring further persecution so what do we learn from this kind of a long passage I know but here we go let's try to wrap it up with two things I think there are two things that are challenging and applicable to us First of all, their priority and our priority. Their priority is seen in that classic statement that we all have heard. We must obey God rather than men. I mean, this is a wonderfully inspiring and courageous statement. We must obey God. It's a statement and confession of the first and ultimate allegiance there is, I think, the obvious implication that we must obey God first regardless of the cost to us. And so the apostles said, we have no choice. We can do no other. Our allegiance, our commitment, our resolve, our devotion, our dedication is to God. And we cannot compromise for anyone or anything. the question is as noble as that is do we have that same priority let me put it in this way at some place somewhere sometime you will be in a situation where you're going to be faced with a decision Will you go along with the crowd and take the easy route even though it would mean denying in some way what you believe or what you know God wants you to do? Or will you stand up at that point and be faithful to your allegiance to God regardless of what it might cost or what others might say or what others might think? May the words of the apostles ring in our ears we must obey God rather than men. Second thing we see is that from which their priority, we must obey God rather than men, that from which it comes, and that is their perspective. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. This was their perspective. Faithfulness to Jesus was more important than anything else. And that meant even the willingness to suffer. This was the perspective that guided their lives because faithfulness to Jesus meant God's approval now and in eternity as well. And no doubt the apostles remembered the words that Jesus had taught them in anticipating this very thing. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. That's their perspective. Their reward in heaven is great that was their perspective on life on god and eternity god and eternity was more important than things of this life may their perspective be our perspective may their priority be our priority let's pray We thank you again, Father, for your word that you have given to us. We thank you as we see in this portion of your word, your sovereign working behind the scenes to orchestrate your purposes for this world. And we know that you're even working among us, even in our lives. But Lord, we thank you for the example that you have prefer, uh, preserved for us of these apostles. Men of flesh, just like us. Feet of clay, just like us. Men of, with fears, families, just like us. And yet, men that you have transformed, and given them this great courage and boldness, and given them this perspective on eternity. Father, may you continue that work in our lives as well, among us as your people. And Lord, we don't know what's in our future as your people we don't know what situations we might even face this week but we pray Father that the Holy Spirit would take the truth of this passage and write it upon our hearts that should there be a situation in which we're faced with a choice that we would make that choice to obey you regardless what the cost might be. Because we want our reward in heaven to be great. So Father, do that work of faithfulness in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.